Hey guys, welcome back to the next episode of the Physique Science Podcast. This is your co-host Sohee Lee with Dr. Elaine Norton. Hey guys, what's going on? And today we have a very special guest. We've got Dr. Jeremy Lenneke on board. Hi Jeremy. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first off, hang on, before we get started, um, Jeremy, I have a very important question to ask you. Have you consumed any alcoholic beverages tonight? <laughs> I, I have not. I have not. And oh. I have to answer that question. Oh, man. <laughs> well, you, you guys are still in for a treat. Jeremy is the, um, is one of the, is the most intense uh, person I know and uh, one of the funniest people I know as well. So uh, he always uh, never, never, never disappoints. So uh, thank you for being on with us, Jeremy. And uh, like so he said, uh, tell us for those of uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with you, um, tell us about um, who you are, what you do, and uh, how you got involved in, um, you know, the, I don't want to say the physique industry, but kind of physique and muscle building research. Sure. Um, Well, uh, I'm a new assistant professor at the University of uh, Mississippi. Um, I compete competitively in science only right now. (laughs) Uh, I started off a long, long time ago uh, in bodybuilding, um, kind of got interested in that, uh, transitioned into powerlifting, um, been a proud member of Team for um, a long time as well. My man, so, and, and for those that don't know, Jeremy, you still have the original Team Norton shirts that we made like back in like 2007, and he, it literally has holes in it, and he still wears it for like every speech under his under his clothing. So we're, right. we're very honored he does that. Classic. Uh, <laughs> it's the best shirt I own, hands down. <laughs> um, but no, I was at, uh, I did my undergrad work at Southeast Missouri State. Uh, went up to Illinois uh, for an internship, and that's really where my research kind of got my research interest kind of got started. I was working with Dr. Huey up there. Um, so got, kind of got a taste of animal research where I met Lane uh, and Chris Foss, two of my uh, best friends now. Um, and when I was up there, I, I saw Lane and uh, kind of doing some blood flow restriction stuff with some knee wraps. Uh, <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. Um, and they kind of were telling me a little bit about it, and I instantly didn't believe them. <laughs> and I had already read a paper about it before, but I, I was an undergrad, so I thought I was just not understanding what I was reading. Uh, but I went back and I started reading a lot about it. I uh, went back to Southeast, um, did my master's there, then went to Oklahoma, um, and kind of really focused on blood flow restriction and I'm carrying that over uh, to my new position at uh, University of Mississippi. Uh, so sorry, we have a, a few studies with blood flow restriction going on right now. So uh, that's basically about about me, I've done bodybuilding, powerlifting, um, so I, I enjoy that. But but now I just do science. <laughs> yeah, definitely, that's uh, your passion, and you're one of the best scientists I know for sure in terms of the uh, pure spirit of being a scientist. Uh, whenever Jeremy's giving a a talk, he always says, I'm, "I'm not trying to sell you on blood flow restriction. I don't care if you do it or not. I'm just telling you what the science says. That's it." <laughs> um, but so. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, blood flow restriction. So, uh, like you mentioned, um, I started. So I, well, you know, since I like, I love to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I got into doing blood flow restriction because I read this huge meta-analysis of uh, hypertrophy. I think it was in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And this katsu training kept getting talked about. And when I looked at the data, I was like, wow, this stuff sounds pretty amazing. And I, then I looked up what it actually was and that these people were applying, you know, cuffs to limbs and, you know, restricting blood flow and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, I had the same response you did. I'm like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> and, I, um, uh, and also the cuffs, you know, I looked into getting the, the katsu cuffs and they were like $10,000. So I'm like, yeah, I'm a graduate student. That's not going to happen. Um, but I started experimenting with a few different things. Uh, I tried, you know, fitness bands and that didn't, didn't really work. Uh, I tried using like the old Harbinger belts, like the Velcro belts to, to restrict blood flow. But what I found that seemed to work in, just anecdotally in terms of producing what seemed to be the, the purported effects of during exercise uh, was knee wraps, uh, using knee wraps on the, on the lower limbs. And so um, I'll, I'll lead in with that and take full credit for all the research that you have done since then, since you saw me doing it. But no, you've really done an incredible amount of research. So for, for, our, so for our people who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what blood flow restriction is and uh, why should they care? Um, first of all, as you kind of alluded to already, I'll go ahead and start by saying um, you don't have to do blood flow restriction to see make a muscle grow, obviously. Um, and so everything I say is just kind of a, a tool to use. I don't personally care if you do it or not. You don't have to do it. Uh, if you want to do it, you can, there's obviously benefits to, do, uh, to using it. Um, but essentially, you're just restricting blood flow um, kind of into the muscle and kind of including it out. So it's just kind of pulling. It's kind of making the muscle swell a little bit. So uh, in doing that, you basically um, kind of make the muscle work a lot harder than it typically would um, under, the, under a similar load. So you train with very low loads, um, and you can see benefits you know, similar to that, what you would see with high load training. Yeah. So. I think that's important to, to point out is we're not saying it's better than heavy training. Like nobody is, no, nobody's ever saying that. Um, and then the, the next question, you know what the next question is, right? Can you, can you guess it? <laughs> the uh, then, why, then why would you do it? Exactly. So people will, yeah. the next question is, well, if it's not any better then why would you do it? So, yeah. uh, you know, what we always say is, that, you know, Jeremy says, if you, if you can't see the benefit to using a low load but still getting the same benefits as heavy training, then you're too stupid to probably implement this training. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that the conversation's over. I mean, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people, um, you know, I, for me, um, I think it's a nice supplement for, you know, like, for example, right now I'm doing a lot of high load powerlifting training, squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing uh, three times a week, actually four times for bench press. And so for me to get enough volume in on kind of fluff work, you know, arms, calves, that sort of stuff, I'm just beat up by the time I go to that. And BFR is a really nice way to get a lot of volume in in a short period of time and get some of the, the same benefits I get from uh, heavy training without going so heavy, um, you know, as I'd have to otherwise. So I think it really does um, have have really good applications, especially for injuries. Like you, actually, you have had a few case studies with injuries, correct? Uh, we had one, but there's been a few other people who have published on it as well. So um, yeah, it seems it's kind of interesting because <clears throat> there's a there's a little bit of research on just applying blood flow restriction um, just by itself. 
uh, which I, I'm starting to kind of implement right now. I'm, you know, I'm always, you know, beat up. But <laughs> so they took people who, you know, just had surgery, um, ACL surgery, and they applied blood flow restriction intermittently. So they would apply it for three minutes, deflate it for two, apply it for three minutes, deflate it for two. And this it is was, without without uh, resistance training, right? Right. They're just they're they're not doing anything. They're just sitting there. Um, and what they found is it doesn't stimulate growth, but it attenuates the loss. So the clinical implication for that, if that's actually truly happening, is, is, is really, um, would be really meaningful, would be really important. So there does seem to be some benefits possibly to just applying the uh, blood flow restriction in the absence of anything. Um, so that's obviously, you know, has important implications for injury. <clears throat> um, you know, there's also been some benefits observed with slow walking or slow cycling. Um, that's really going to be dependent upon training status. Um, if you're if you're somebody like Lane Norton and you want to, you know, make the muscle grow by walking on a treadmill, uh, <laughs> you're probably wasting your time. Um, but it, it, it might help him maintain. But if you really, really want to see, uh, you know, the similar adaptations to high-level training, then you need to do it with resistance training. So at 20 to 30% of your max. So your max is hundred pounds. You'd use 20 or 30 pounds uh, for, you know, three or four sets of, of higher repetition work. But um, sometimes, you know, people will cite the like, well, you know, <clears throat> it's been observed that blood flow restriction is similar to that high low training. And then they'll cite Abe's walking study, which is not the same. You know, you're going to get some, some meaningful increase, but it's not anywhere close to what you see with low, low training with blood flow restriction. Jeremy, can you give us a better idea of who would benefit, you know, what kinds of, of people would benefit from, from BFR? Is it only people who are injured? Is it people who, you know, can, can women do it? Is it all populations, all ages? Yeah. Um, good question. So, uh, the observed benefits have been observed in, you know, men, women, young, old, um, trained, untrained. Uh, so we've seen a lot of benefits in, in, in several different populations. I think in general for the population that we're probably talking to, it probably um, would serve as a great supplement to their normal training, as long as they keep it in context with their, you know, total training volume. So, you know, if they're blasting a muscle group with like four exercises, does adding blood flow restriction on at the end of that going to make a big difference? Probably not. But if you keep it in the context, you know, of your overall volume, however, you know, that whatever that is, um, it, it might be some benefits. So you can train, you know, like Lane does, uh, really, really heavy, and then supplement it with some of that low, low blood flow restriction exercise. Uh, another way you could do it is, um, I'm not too hardcore to admit this, but um, <laughs> there, there's some days I just don't feel like, training heavy yeah. you know I, I just don't have it that's right. <laughs> so uh it's a perfect time to use blood flow restriction because it, okay. you know it, it, it's almost dangerous if you're lifting super heavy um and, and you don't mentally have that focus that day it takes no mental focus to lift 20 or 30 percent or, or, or a lot less focus i should say uh 20 or 30 percent of your max um so I, that's that's a couple different ways you know injuries um are obviously you know it would be of great importance for that as well. Um, you know, the people who probably shouldn't do it, um, I, I don't have any, any data on this, but one thing that, you know, always pops up um, is people who um, 
kind of are at risk for like thromboembolism. So, all right. Um, you know, it's really hard to to know if that would be a, a truly an issue uh, because typically that's associated with you have long term restriction, which is this is such a short term thing. I don't think it would be a problem, but. Jeremy, that's a, I'm going to jump in real quick. That's an interesting thing that a lot of people, in, even in science, don't understand. And I want to make this distinction. Uh, a lot of people will compare like the dangers of certain things and say, well, this look at this condition where they restrict blood flow and it, causes, it can cause an embolism or it can cause you know, these health decrements. There is a big, big, big difference between a short-term acute response and a long-term low-level response, okay? You can see this in multiple pathways. Uh, inflammation, you know, actually, look at exercise in general. If I told you that, um, if I didn't tell you you were doing exercise, and I told you I was going to, a scientist, that I was going to do an activity that increased your reactive oxygen species production, that increased, you know, or your free radicals, uh, increased your heart rate, increased your blood pressure, uh, increased inflammation. Would you and would you sit there and say, "Oh yeah, that sounds healthy"? Right, no, right. you you would say, "No, it, you know that's bad for you." But exercise does all those things, but it does it on an acute scale, and it's almost like, I mean, this may be lack of a better term, it's like a vaccine almost. Okay, you give your body a controlled dose of that stressor, and it becomes better at handling that stressor. Right? We don't have. You know, at least in healthy people, we don't have runaway inflammation and that sort of thing from from exercise. So I, I kind of, and you can give me your opinion, Jeremy. I kind of would view blood flow restriction in that same vein. You're talking about a very, you know, short term, uh, it, you know, issue with this that's much different than a, a long term kind of clinical problem. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I think uh, you know the only other thing I would talk about, is, you know, briefly because I don't think it gets talked about enough is. Um, again, I don't know if it would be an issue with this, but if people have had like, you know, maybe breast cancer, they had lymph nodes removed. Um, oftentimes they don't let them have blood pressure taken on that arm. Mm. So I, I would just go ahead and probably not do blood flow restriction either. Um, there's no data on that, but that's just kind of using your head. Um, yeah. so I don't know that would be a problem, but I probably wouldn't, you know, test it out. But, um, you know, we, we've used it on so many populations, um, um, from you know young people all the way to older men and women so and, and, and so absolutely. just sticking with this 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 um, because I've seen your talks so I, I know kind of where to go with these questions but just sticking with the theme of, of safety uh, I think the important thing to, to say is that because people will look at it and they and you'll even say hey look you should ask is this safe you know it doesn't seem you know when we both first started looking at it, we're like okay this doesn't seem legit you know what I mean <laughs> um, but again, if you go looking through the safety data, you really you can't find anything that says it's not safe, with the exception of one case study, which I, you know, I'd like to get your perspective on. Um, there is a case study out there where they basically, uh, ac I don't want to say accused, but uh, hypothesized that blood flow restriction caused uh, rhabdomyolysis. Correct. Well, I we'll just talk about that case study. So they did a case study on a hockey player. Um, they were doing blood flow restriction to help him rehab. Uh, he got rhabdomyolysis, um, went to the hospital, came back, um, started doing blood flow restriction again, and <laughs> went, to, uh, um, went, you know, rehab, then went back to, uh, went back to plane. So my, my general, my first thought is this, obviously one, you don't get that from the abstract. So all the people who keep posting that on my Facebook, why don't you read the study? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Abstract scientists, my friend, they're they're a plague. 
Second of all, you know, it, it, to me, looking at that, if, if, if that staff truly thought blood flow restriction caused rhabdo, then the, the first thing they, you know, they wouldn't have them do blood flow restriction as soon as he got out of the hospital. <laughs> exactly. Okay? That, that makes no sense. But obviously something happened with that individual. So um, is it possible that exercise caused that? Of course. You know, somebody, some people are more susceptible to rhabdomyolysis. Um, but it could have just been the exercise stimulus itself. Um, when we look at, you know, when we look through um, the literature and we look at all these controlled studies on muscle damage, we don't see anything. Now, we've, we've studied this in our lab, you know, probably three or four different times and seen nothing. Um, when we look through all the literature, it, it, there's no, you know, you see an increase in soreness, <clears throat> but no other increase in any other indirect marker or direct marker for that matter. So uh, no change, no long-term changes in performance. So I, I don't think, I think if muscle damage is occurring, it's very, very, very small. It doesn't mean that it can't occur. Obviously, if you do like, you know, over and above what you should be doing, then obviously that can happen anytime, right. you know? So people, I mean, rhabdomyolysis occurs with normal training, you know, when it's not programmed correctly or, or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, Looking at the totality of literature, I'm not convinced that, you know, it, I mean, if it is causing muscle damage, it's so small that we, we can't measure it. So, so you mean I shouldn't, I shouldn't listen to YouTube experts who have, who have never done any research who tell me that this is, is going to kill me the first time I do it? Well, you, you can do whatever you want, but I, <laughs> I don't think it's a smart, I don't think it's a wise thing. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to take a break, guys, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. We're talking to Dr. Jeremy Linnick. Hey, guys. One of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school-level research that it's going to contribute to the fitness industry. It is 100% tax deductible and 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to biolane.com, click on the About tab and click on Biolane Foundation and you can put your donation in through there. Or if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, please go to biolane.com, click the About tab Click BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. Hey guys, you know me, and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go, that's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal... I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed with 20 grams of high-quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at QuestNutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram at Quest Nutrition and YouTube.com slash Quest Nutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious.
Hey guys, welcome back to Physique Science Podcast. Earlier we were talking about blood flow restriction from more of an advanced perspective and I want to bring it down a little bit, pull it back to more of a beginner perspective from from the point of view of someone who maybe is hearing about BFR for the first time and is unfamiliar with it and wants to know more about how to specifically implement it. So Jeremy, can you tell us about the, as, as far as exercise selection, um, what what movements can we do with BFR and what, what are contraindicated? Uh, sure. So, you know, the most commonly used exercise in blood flow restriction is probably, you know, leg extension, uh, elbow curl, just because that's the easiest thing to research. Um, and, you know, both of those have seen, you know, benefits. Um, there's also been benefits to leg press as well as a squat and bench press. So you can really use it in a variety of different exercises. It's going to be really kind of up to your, you know, your preference. Obviously, you know, the listeners may, you know, be curious as to how the bench press, uh, would be beneficial given that the chest is not under blood flow restriction. Um, and the reason for why we think that might be happening is, um, it, it's possible that when you apply the blood flow restriction at the top of the arm, that it basically makes the triceps kind of fatigue faster than they normally would, and the chest picks up the load. So um, it does appear to be beneficial to muscles that are directly under blood flow restriction, and maybe uh, beneficial to some muscles that aren't under blood flow restriction, just kind of indirect. Um, as far as exercises that I, I probably wouldn't do it on, um, probably just, you know, regular deadlift, um, just because you're, it just, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, Probably, you know, maybe like a kind of like a, a side lateral I probably wouldn't do. You know, just because the shoulders aren't really under blood flow restriction. So I would probably superset that with probably triceps, something that is under blood flow restriction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, um, but you can do single joint, multi-joint movements. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, you can do it with a lot of different exercises is, is kind of the, um, I guess, the, the, the main answer. It just... Depends on what your your preference is, but I, I would make sure that if you're doing a muscle that's not under blood flow restriction, that you probably superset it with something that is. Um, so, would it make sense, or would it be completely asinine to say, "Hey, I'm gonna <coughs> full full body training split right now, and I've got one full body heavy heavy day"? Would I can I just say, "I'm just gonna make this entire workout BFR and do every single exercise, obviously cutting down the weight." Um, but if I were to do all those movements, <coughs> overkill. So you're asking, you know, could I just do your whole body with blood flow restriction as part of your training split? Right. Just hypothetically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so, I mean, you, you, I mean, you obviously could do that. I kind of did a, a modification of that where um, I was training with very high frequently uh, with very high frequency. You know, I would train heavy upper body, and then that day, you know, I would finish with uh, blood flow restriction lower body. And the next day, I would do heavy up, uh, lower body and finish with blood flow restriction upper body. And then I would just keep doing that repeatedly. So I did that for a while. I had some success. Uh, but, you know, it, it really depends on what your training split is. So a lot of people consistently ask me, what is the optimal program? Um, and, and that's really an impossible answer. Um, it's just kind of like, well, could I, what kind of program would I use? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Um, but I, I think hypothetically, absolutely, you could, you, you could do that. So there are lots of ways to approach it. 
Absolutely. I think, like I like we said earlier, I think most people um, who are listeners probably um, would benefit from you know if they wanted to do it, you know, by adding it, supplementing it to the end of their workout. You know, instead of doing it, instead of if you have late extensions left, instead of doing that heavy, do it with blood flow restriction instead. You know, lower the low, lower the stress a little bit. Yeah. Actually, I just thought of something. So it's great for people you said who are injured, and or if you don't really don't feel like going heavy one day. But I guess if you're tra let's say you're traveling and you're at a hotel gym and you have a very limited selection of dumbbells to work with, would that be another good case, good scenario with which to use um, BFR? Would you say? Uh, absolutely. I think you're. Uh, I think that's uh, um, obviously. What was that sound? That was lame. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do anything. Don't blame me. <laughs> so yeah, no, you obviously that would be another another way you could do that for sure. You know, because most you know most gyms or most hotel gyms, if they're really really nice, they might the dumbbells might go up to like forty pounds. So right. um, yeah, absolutely. That would be a great idea. And you said you just have you need all you need is regular knee wraps from any old drugstore. Yeah, I, I you know I recommend that's all I recommend for people who are just doing this in the gym, just cheap elastic knee wraps. You know they cost like ten bucks on a variety of bodybuilding um, uh, online stores. I, I wouldn't get like don't get like the thick powerlifting ones that don't stretch. Just get very cheap ones. Um, they literally cost nine dollars. Um, so, um, you know, with, uh, with the hotel, one of the things that we were doing when we were in Australia, uh, we were kind of running people through circuits. So, which is, is perfect. When, if, if you don't have any weights, we had people doing bodyweight squats and then they would just go do oh, calf and bodyweight squats, calf raises. So they're getting a, a good workout under blood flow restriction. You know, it would, it, it's basically augmenting what the workout would be. Yeah, Jeremy, now the, so the next question that comes up, kind of a next logical step is, so you're wrapping with knee wraps. How tight should people wrap? <laughs> was that yours, Sohi? Yeah, because we I was doing it with um, my fiance, Evan. He had it programmed, and he, we were all like, how tight is too tight? How tight? How tight? And we just we were like, I don't know. <laughs> well, Evan, Evan is an army ranger, so I assume he probably tried to tie it so tight that his leg was going to fall off. <laughs> it was a lot of trial and error. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so with with pressure, one of the the biggest one of the biggest determinants of pressure is the is the width. So you know, for knee wraps, I think just taking the normal knee wrap size and then wrapping it at the top of your leg um, is fine. We'll talk about pressure here in a second, but I think that width is fine. But the up for the arm, I think it's too, a little bit too wide. I think it, I think some people when they wrap it, it covers like half their bicep, but it makes it really really hard to actually contract the muscle. So with knee wraps, I just cut it, I cut off one of the ends and I cut it up the middle to make it really narrow. Does that make sense? Yes. All? Okay, so um, again, we can upload some pictures or whatever, but at the, at the top of the arm, um, but when you, for, as far as uh, pressure, it doesn't need to be so tight that you're cutting off blood flow. So if you're, if you're wrapping it and you're in pain before you start exercise, it's probably way too tight. So I recommend just, you know, looking, you know, kind of monitoring a workload for how tight the pressure is. So um, if you wrap it and it's not, and you're not in pain before you start exercise, 
but you can't get even close to 30 repetitions in three sets of 15. Um, so the, the protocol that we usually do is four sets. First one is about 30 reps. Uh, depending on the exercise, last three is around 15. If you can't even get close to that, then the, then the load is too high or the reps are too tight. Okay. And, okay. And, so, and, and Jeremy, uh, they keep the reps on during that entire protocol, correct? Right. Right. So the load should be 20 to 30% of your max. Okay. So make sure that it's that. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if you want to train with heavy loads, then just train with heavy loads. <laughs> There's no augmentation with heavy loads and blood flow restriction. I've seen no evidence that that happens. Um, so, but if you're not getting close to those goal amount of repetitions, always going to get all of them. But if you're not getting close and you, and you know the load is, is low, then the wraps are too tight. Does that make sense? So it's going to be a little bit of trial and error because obviously you don't know what the pressure is. But I, I in general, just based on acute things, um, I don't think that tighter is better. I think that moderate is better. But we're currently testing that in our lab right now. So I'll have a better idea um, of, of whether or not that's true here in about six weeks or so. Very cool. And um, you, so people have said, you know, seven out of 10, eight out of 10, whatever. But the, the problem with that is this, you know, stiffness of wraps can vary. So um, uh, for, for me, um, what I've always done is I've kind of, you, I, I think, and you've said this, you will feel a fluid shift, right? So if you're, it should be tight, snug. You should feel uh, the fluid shift. You know, you're going to notice an increase in, in, in fluid accumulation in the limb, uh, but it should not be painful. Would that be kind of a, a, a decent marker, you think? Yeah. I, you know, so again, the, the purpose of blood flow restriction is to stimulate muscle growth and strength. It's not to be in as much pain as possible. <laughs> so if you apply it and you're in severe pain before exercise has started, it's way too tight. So it's not to say that you're not going to feel discomfort from this exercise. You certainly will. Uh, but that's going to be from, you know, that buildup and metabolite. So that's going to be coming from the exercise, not before the exercise. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I, I do, I think some people, um, I, I get a lot of messages um, for people saying, well, I applied it, but I wasn't in pain. I don't think I did it right. It's like that, that's not, that's not the, the, the purpose of blood flow restriction is not to be in pain. Okay. Um, again, that, that may happen, but we're, I, I don't personally actively seek to be in pain. I, I don't personally enjoy it. Um, but you know, whatever, whatever that, that's a different conversation, I guess. You know, that's um, but you're, that's, you're not hardcore enough. Get off our show. Yeah, I guess. But. <laughs> no, I mean you're 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 right, and this is our you know kind of our crux of you know flexible dieting versus versus you know quote unquote clean eating. Um, you know, a, yeah. a, a student who is a former or as a current client of mine, she's doing her masters, and she's actually going to set up a. I don't want to give too much away, but she's going to set up a, a flexible dieting versus essentially clean eating study. And what, and so people have asked, well, do you, do you think IFYM is, or flexible dieting is going to be better? I said, no, I think they'll be the same. But the point is, if you don't have to suffer, why would you suffer? You know, like if, if all things are equal, why not just eat whatever the hell you want? You know? (laughs) So. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeremy. What were you going to say? No, I I find the, I've kind of discussed this before. I, I find the entire conversation nonsensical. It makes no sense to me that. Clean eating versus flexible dieting. It's 
everybody's doing the same thing. They're just calling it something completely different. Oh, yeah. They're, that drives me nuts. They're like, oh, yeah, the clean eating. They're like, oh, you know, we explain what flexible dieting really is. And they say, oh, yeah, that's what cleaning, cleaning eating is to me, though. I'm like, well, okay, so everyone has different definitions of everything? I, I personally feel like um, both sides are to blame for this idiocy that we have to continually discuss. <laughs> Uh, because you have people flexible dieting who consistently post like this post this food on on my Facebook news feed as if that's all they eat. So that's what people see. Yeah. And then you have other people who you know are, are the whole. It, it's like saying I don't ride a bike, I cycle. You know, calling <laughs> it something different. That's um, my favorite one, Jeremy. I don't mean to get too off topic, but my favorite one I heard was somebody said, you know, I tried macros and, and macros just didn't work for me. And I said, you realize, you realize like, that's like saying, um, yeah, gravity, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. You know, like I hate cars. Cars are terrible. Cars suck. That's why I drive a Honda. <laughs> you know, like you, you just, when you say stuff like that, you've just revealed yourself to be a complete idiot. And completely ignorant. So, anyway, so for those of you out there who may or not may not be familiar, don't say things like "macros do not work for me" because it just, you know, it confirms that you are not well educated. So, uh, and we like our listeners to be very well educated, which is why we bring on the best guests like Dr. Linicky. Um, so we're actually going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll uh, we'll we'll have some more rants. I think with Dr. Linicky, I, I sense him him heating up over there, which is which is good. We like it when Jeremy gets. Uh, Gets a little fired up. He always has some good rants. So we will return here in a minute. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend, and they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want, and the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. 
If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us and read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohi's website at sohifit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. We're back on Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton, and we're talking to my good friend, Dr. Jeremy Linicky. And uh, over break, uh, Sohi, you had a question that I, I was, is uh, very important, actually, because there's so many things that go into to BFR in terms of, you know, people just get intimidated by it because it's so kind of different. Um, well, you asked about, uh, what was your question? Uh, well, it was a really basic question that I think that we overlooked um, as we found to the details of BFR, but the most basic question is where would the BFR wraps even go on your body? Right. So not around the neck, not around the knees. <laughs> not around the, uh, the only two, there's only two places they go at the very top of the arm, at the very top of the leg, at the very top of the arm, <laughs> at the very top of the leg. That's it. Not around the knees, not around the waist, not around your feet, not around your neck, at the top of your leg and the top of your arm. That's but, it. But Jeremy, what about for calves? You know, <laughs> when you shrink at the top of the leg, I don't even know how to answer that question. When you when you apply the blood flow restriction at the top of the leg, it's the same blood supply. I, I'm, I don't understand that question. <laughs> so for those who don't know, I, I, and actually, you know what, I make fun of people who ask that question, but I actually, when I started doing BFR, before you started doing all this research, I used to wrap um, below the knee. And what I found was I couldn't understand why calves were just infinitely more painful than every other muscle group when I was doing that. And reading some of your research afterwards, uh, I probably realized that they, because that joint is so small that the wraps were probably uh, too thick or too, um, too wide, too wide a cuff for that joint. Yeah. So if you have like the bigger the area, the more pressure it takes to restrict blood flow. So Anybody, you know, obviously I was doing it around the knee too because, you know, Lane Orton was my hero and I'm trying to do what he's doing. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in severe pain in the side of the gym. Uh, but, and it so, is, that is painful when you do it that way, boy. Whew. Yeah, it, I don't even want to say that that, that wouldn't be effective. I, I just think it's a safety concern more than anything. When, it, when you don't, when it's, when it's not a necessary safety concern, when, when we can still restrict blood flow at the top of the leg. So the reason why it was so painful is that you were essentially under arterial occlusion, which is not the goal of blood flow restriction, because there's there's very little meat around that area. So you know you were probably yeah had zero blood flow whatsoever. And that's an important distinction that uh, you know you're trying to, you really want to strict restrict venous return. You're not trying to. I mean I think there's going to be some restriction of arterial delivery of blood. <laughs> but you're trying to really restrict the venous return, which can be restricted by a lower pressure than the arterial delivery, correct? Right. So, you know, we're obviously restricting arterial flow as well, but yeah, it's basically, we just want the, the, the blood to pull in the, in, the, in, the, in the muscle. Absolutely. Very cool. So do you have uh, any other questions for you? Cause uh, I want to I answer a really, really sexy sciencey question. <laughs> um, yeah. I just had another basic follow-up that I thought of. Um, Perfect. So, Far away. So from my understanding, BFR wraps go, you know, either the top of the arm or the, either or the top of the legs. Do you ever do both at the same time? Um, no, we have not. Um, one or the other, right? Yeah. 
Yes, I, I don't I don't think it would be a, a, a problem, but I, I, I don't want to say there's there's not a lot of data on that model. Um, so I would just recommend one at a time. Absolutely. That makes sense. Do I get to ask my super sexy science question now? <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy, what 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 mechanism do you think made it might explain why you're seeing these benefits? Why, why BFR with such a low load, you're able to, to basically replicate uh, similar gains as to what's seen with high load training. So, um, yeah, good question. I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and focus on, since you said similar to high load training, that's the only phase that does that is blood flow restriction in combination with low load training. So I think the mechanisms are kind of additive across these, you know, phases. Uh, but low load training with blood flow restriction, what do I think is happening? Uh, I think a lot of things. I think in general, I think restricting blood flow causes kind of that buildup in metabolites. Um, I think it facilitates the swelling response. I think it um, basically augments muscle activation. So you're getting high levels of recruitment. Um, there's also been some, you know, recent work on satellite cells that, like, you know, basically a rapid proliferation of satellite cells with this low loads, um, which might be important for, uh, it's actually being shown to be very important for muscle hypertrophy. Um, so I think a variety of different things, but I think just in general, basically speaking, I think applying the cup, uh, you know, you get a build of metabolites that don't get flushed out. So I think that's very important. So we talk about leaving the cuffs on the entire time. So, so the, the entire time, meaning during the set of exercise. Um, and I think that basically the, that build of metabolites in the muscle, especially during rest, I think that might be very important. Um, so, and, and we know that is important for, you know, augmenting uh, muscle activation as well. So, yeah, there was, a, there was a study, I remember one of the first studies I saw on BFR where they, they showed that there was actually a preferential activation of the, the fast twitch fibers, is that correct? Of type two fibers. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily want to use the term preferential, but I think okay. it, I basically, you know, depending on the muscle group, you know, the, the the thought process is you recruit type one, and then you recruit type one in addition to type two. So the height principle. I think it gets to type two uh, a lot quicker than it typically would normally, uh, just because of the of the fatigue response. Yeah. Now I, I used to think that um, swelling was playing this huge role. And I, and, I, and I do think it's playing an important role, but I, I don't think that cell swelling is everything that I, I, I once thought it was. Um, and that's basically, you know, when, when I started collecting data on it and looking back, it makes sense now uh, that a muscle is only going to, it's only going to swell so much. It's, you know, it's a finite amount. Um, so what I found is that a variety of different pressures, um, a variety of different protocols, the muscle swells exactly the same. Even though I know that you know there, there, there's probably some differences there with with the chronic adaptation, so I think swelling might be important, but I don't think by itself it's enough without all of the other mechanisms. Interesting, and there, there was also another thing that you you thought BFR might uh, might be causing, right? You thought originally, and I, I'm 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 leading this somewhere. Um, you know, I, I think the mark of a good scientist is to be able to look back and say, you know what, got that one wrong, and not look at it as oh I failed. You know, it's, I always tell people, um, you know, we should care more about getting the right answer than we should about being right, you know, and I, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Like everybody wants to be right, obviously, but it can't trump trying to get the right answer. 
And uh, like, for example, I'll tell people when I went in to do my thesis, I went in to do my thesis with a bias of I love protein. I wanted to find reasons to eat more protein and eat it more frequently. And you know what I did when I came out of my PhD? I ate less protein and I ate it less frequently. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that was, you know, I had to admit that, oh, you know, I was, I was wrong about that. But I, it ended up being some of the most interesting data we, we got was that sort of thing. Um, and, and so you actually had like a, you were, your first kind of hypothesis was, was growth hormone, correct? Yeah. So a lot of people had some data on it. So I was kind of looking at that and, you know, they were hypothesizing it. Everybody's hypothesizing it, at least in blood flow restriction literature, um, as kind of this, this large, this big mechanism behind muscle growth, because, um, it's elevated so much higher than anything else. Um, and I remember it was in Seattle, you know, Dr. Stu Phillips, um, mm. was presenting some of his students about, you know, these exercise induced increases in hormones, um, you know, don't, don't really seem like they're playing a big role with muscle hypertrophy. And I just remember looking at that being like, man, what is it? This guy's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's called growth hormone. <laughs> Maybe this guy doesn't know what he's saying. I mean, it's growth <laughs> hormone. So I just remember just, him just really hammering that in. And I, I, I went, there was like an overlook in Seattle. I just remember sitting there thinking my whole research career is over, you know, <laughs> I, I really, it's, it was growth hormone, you know? <laughs> so basically I was like, well, I'll wait for that study to get published. You know what I mean? So anybody can say whatever they want at a conference. Let's see the data get published. And then it gets published. And I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> so I, I'm looking at this paper and I'm like, well, you know, there's, it's gotta be something wrong with this paper. You know, it gotta be something wrong with it. So I'm staring at this paper, I'm like, something's wrong. I'll, I'll find it eventually. And then I was like, okay, I got it. You know, this is acute data. You know, he, you need to show this in a training study. So I'm like, yeah, it's garbage. You know? <laughs> and then he, he comes out of the training study. I'm like, God, man. So I'm looking at this and then I'm like, well, let me go back and look at, you know, the old literature. And then you go back and look at that. And then you start realizing that it never made any sense to begin with. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of animal data that, was already showing that, you know, he's showing it in humans. So, um, I really had to kind of take a step back and really kind of think about, um, am I really a scientist or, or what exactly am I? So, or a politician. Um, yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, that was the first time I, I, I was wrong because if you read some of my early papers, um, I'm, I'm continually talking about this short term changes in growth hormone. You know, that, that impressive 15-minute elevation within the diurnal range. Um, well, I, so, I think that's important for our young scientists who may be listening as well, because I know we have some out there that, um, you know, don't – you're going to be wrong. I mean, it's just part of it. Like, you're, you're, you are – when I give talks, I'll, the first thing I'll say is, like, you know what? I'm probably going to be wrong on some of this stuff, okay? But I'm always going to try and get it as right as I possibly can based on the available data, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and people have, you know, people will take old articles of mine. And they'll say, "Lane, you said this here, like it's, you know, almost like years a, ago, right? yeah, it's like a, like a hypocrite thing." And I'm like, "Well, if I was still saying the same things I was saying five or ten years ago, don't, don't you think there like to be a problem with that? You know, like we're always evolving our understanding of things." And um, you know, actually, uh, and Stu Phillips has actually come to be somebody that Jeremy and I both uh, very much respect, and I think he, his lab does some of the best research in in, in the world, and. Um, and, uh, 
you know, he actually, just, just as an interesting aside, he actually showed that, you know, people get so concerned about short-term rises and, and falls in growth hormone, which, which, by the way, growth hormone is in no way anabolic, uh, skeletal muscle in adults. It's just not, um, even in long-term. Uh, whereas, you know, so, so, he show, so he looked at examining different hormones and guess what hormone was the most closely associated with muscle hypertrophy in his study? It was, it was cortisol, <laughs> you know, the, the catabolic killer, you know what I mean? That every muscle magazine tells you, you got to worry about, um, now and people, this is, this is again, um, why it's important not to be an abstract scientist. Um, because people will look at that and they'll say, well, we could, well, if they, and the, let's say they actually, you know, believe the data, right? Because a lot of people, they have cognitive dissonance and if it doesn't fit with their, their bias, they will refuse to believe it. I mean, Jeremy and I have come across this many times and I'm sure so he's same thing. Um, yeah. you can literally show somebody, you know, that, that you know, that their, their opinion is wrong and, and they will continue to, to, to defend it in the face of overwhelming evidence. But, um, I'll, I'll just speak on that. I'll speak on that real quick. And I, yeah. I think a lot of times that happens because people have no understanding of how to understand science at all. You know, not not everybody can understand every discipline. You know, on an expert level. Um, and I think sometimes we have people, you know, critiquing and trying to um, discuss science when they have no scientific training at all. Yeah. They have no. It, I, I've talked about this before. You know, with. Uh, I think with Andrea, I want to hurt podcast before. It's like, um, I don't get to, you know, it, you did a lot of stuff with amino acid metabolism. Yeah. If, I, if, I, if I'm saying something, I'm like, you know, leucine does this, leucine does that. And you're like, well, actually, you know, I don't get to go, well, no, 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 Lane, you go ahead and respect my opinion. Because you've, yeah. forgotten, about, you've forgotten more about leucine than I, I've ever known about leucine. You know <laughs> Well, I think somebody, somebody, I forget who it was, but they said, no, you're, you're, you know, everybody's like, well, you're entitled to your opinion. And it's like, no, your, your opinion is not valid. You know, like if you're not, um, you, 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 your opinions don't carry the same weight. Like, yes, you can have an opinion, but if you don't know anything about it, I mean, and part of it is, you know, PubMed and those things are great because anybody can go there and look up research data. Right. And I encourage people to do that. But at the same time, if you've never actually been in a lab, if you've never actually conducted a study, don't understand what actually goes into the nuances of data collection, I mean, really, there's no way you can read a study and properly interpret it. I mean, it's just, and that's not me being hateful or anything like that. That's just, I mean, before I actually went and did graduate level research, I didn't know how to interpret studies either, right? So I would look at a study like, for example, the study we were just discussing with Stu Phillips, and I'd say, well, maybe cortisol is actually anabolic, right? Because I would see, oh, you know, uh, it was most closely associated with anabolism. Whereas, you know, now I can look at that and say, you know what, it's not anabolic. What it is, is that a workout that's going to create, um, you know, going to be the most volume, be the most challenging, be the most, you know, um, create the most stimulus for growth is also going to be uh, the most stressful on your body's system, and there's going to be more cortisol released in order to liberate more fuel and those sort of things. It's a fuel response, right? And so, like, actually having been in a lab and, and, and doing that research allows me to better interpret that. And again, I'm not saying people shouldn't go out and read research data, but unfortunately, we have people who get on YouTube or they, they, they get on a radio show or, or that sort of thing, and they've never actually done any research. 
and you know give their opinions and people listen to them because for whatever reason they speak well or they're funny or they have a following or they do some weird thing that everybody goes oh my god that's so weird so it must be good you know so to speak to that as a, as a scientist you know because you you do put yourself out there a little bit in terms of social media uh, i'm sure that's very frustrating for you yeah i think you know, I think a lot of the school system has done a disservice with the term research because people have con are, are uh, consistently um, confused on that term. Hmm. Reading, reading is not research. Reading is it's just a, it's just reading. You know what I mean? I can. There's a lot of re There's a lot of original research that I can read that I don't have. I don't understand. I'm, I don't do that research. You know, I I read about satellite cells. I've never researched satellite cells. I have no idea. You know what I'm saying? So I think people constantly go, well, my research has shown this. It's like, what research? Like, are you collecting data in your garage? I don't understand what you're talking <laughs> um, So I, I think that's a problem. And I think people, um, you know, they, they consistently use that term. They consistently uh, just expect that they're going to understand everything. You know, science isn't intuitive. There's a lot of science I don't understand at all. You yeah. know, there's some techniques in my own field. Like you start talking about, you know, some of that molecular stuff. I, I've never done that research. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's a, there's a guy on Twitter, Dr. Lee Hamilton. I'm consistently yep. emailing this guy because he's a high level researcher. He does a lot of cool stuff. Very nice guy. And I'm like, I'll, I'll look at something and I'll kind of have a pretty good idea of what I think it's saying, you know? And I'm like, is this, is this a good study? You know, what, what's the limitation of this study? Because I don't know. I don't do that that type of technique, you know, I, I know exactly. I do a lot of ultrasound. Uh, I work with Dr. Abe who's you know, very good with ultrasound. So I know a lot of things about the ultrasound that you can never know unless you do the ultrasound. Exactly. You know, so yeah, I, I think people get um, upset too early. I, I think it's okay. I, I think it's okay to just say, Hey, I, I, I'm not an expert on this topic. I don't know why that's such a problem. <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, a lot of it has to do with egos, especially in the uh, the fitness industry. There's a there's a few people out there who have, um, I mean, I, I I got called a disgrace to science by somebody who has never actually done any uh, scientific research themselves, which I I thought was interesting. Highly um, ironic. Wow. What's that? It's highly ironic. Yes, I mean, you know, it's like, well, I wrote a book, and it's like, well, that's great. A retarded monkey can write a book, you know, like it's, <laughs> it can be. Um, you know, it can be frustrating as a scientist, but you, uh, you know, I think at a certain point you realize you're not going to reach everybody and you, you can't, uh, you have to just kind of, I guess like Jeremy has the best attitude with BFR. I'm not trying to sell it to you, right? Like here's the data and you can do what you want with it. I mean, you know, reverse, like for example, reverse dieting. So he and I released that ebook and we got, you know, some people, uh, who was like, well, this has never been shown in studies and et cetera. So it's like, yeah. And we, we say that in the book, like we say, Hey, look, this is, uh, uh, this is our, um, best guess at what may be helpful based on what we've observed with clients. And there is no research data on, you know, this particular phase of dieting, but here's what we think may happen. Okay. Right. That's called forming a hypothesis. All right. <laughs> and, uh, that's okay to do in science. You just can't make your claims too strongly. You know, you have to say, may and might be and all this other sort of stuff you you know and um 
I think that's important distinction um, is between, you know, what you can actually draw conclusions from and, and what you have to be very careful with. Um, so we're going to take a, a quick break and we're going to come back and, and finish this up. We really appreciate uh, Dr. Linicky joining us and uh, you're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty, I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. We're back on Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton, with my co-host, Sohi Lee, and Dr. Jeremy Lenicky. And, uh, Jeremy, I want to switch gears real quick. I know we've been talking a lot about um, BFR, but another really interesting study you did was... Um, was actually with Dr. Chris Foss and Dr. Lindy Rousseau um, about uh, Dr. Foss's contest prep. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I got started um, when he first did his first show. They worked in a cardiovascular lab, so they were doing a lot of monitoring on him, just just kind of just practice, and they noticed a lot of you know interesting things occurring. Uh, so the next time, I think it was a couple years later, he was getting ready for his pro debut. Um, we were all at Oklahoma, um, and we kind of, uh, Lindy got the idea to let's try to study him, um, hmm. studied him six months before the show, six months after the show. Um, and when I say studied him, uh, she literally included every measurement you could possibly think of. So, uh, we had cardiovascular measurements, we had strength measurements, we had body composition measurements, we had measurements of energy expenditure, we had measurements of hormones, um, uh, measurements of aerobic capacity. So we basically measured everything. So um, all the way up into the show and then out of the show. So it was really kind of interesting because, as you know, Dr. Foz uh, is an absolute machine. So yes, um, it, it's a, it was a very it was a very well controlled study, um, and everything was tracked. So um, it, it's one of the most well controlled studies that I know of personally. That I I, I have a hundred percent confidence. Um, and, you know, he, he did exactly what he said he did because yeah. he, he's one of the few people who actually does that. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I have no doubts of the validity of this study because I was coaching Chris at the time. So I was, uh, even though I'm not an author of the study, I was, I was definitely kind of involved in kind of a roundabout way. Um, and I think one of the uh, – talk about what happened to his uh, testosterone, his hormone levels. Did you guys measure leptin at all? We did. I, um, you know, leptin was obviously non-existent. Um, no, so how do you know about how low it got? I, I don't. I, I don't even know if maybe it didn't register. I, I can't yeah. remember off my head, but it was it was very very low. Ghrelin was obviously very very high. 
Um, it was, it's exactly what we would expect on someone who uh, is basically pseudo starving, I guess. Um, but the funny thing is, is he was still consuming like 2,000 calories a day, even near the end. Yeah. So he had, yeah, he was still consuming a lot for most people. Um, so his testosterone was very, very, very low. Um, but he maintained almost all, you know, most of his fat free mass. I think he lost, you know, around two or three kilograms. So, you know, a very small percentage of his overall body mass loss. Um, right. And, and, uh, like at one point I always want to mention with lean body mass is lean body mass is all non-fat tissues. So, you know, when you, people hear that and they go, what, two to three kilograms, that's like five pounds of muscle. The, he, that's a, that's a terrible prep. Well, what you got to understand is that, you know, that includes all non-fat tissues, bone, skin, uh, liver, heart, uh, intestines, you know? And so, you know, not, 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 I'm not saying he couldn't have lost any, any skeletal muscle, but, um, your intestines and liver are large reserves for uh, amino acids and your gut tissues will shrink when you die, when you calorie restrict because you're using them less. I mean, it's just, it's a very basic thing. Um, and, and so I think that's an important point to make out. And, and especially because he, he re- maintained his relative strength throughout the entire thing. So the, the likelihood, and I tell people this, like, look, if you're, if you're maintaining your relative strength, cause people ask, how do I know if I'm losing muscle? Um, if you're maintaining your relative strength, the, the fact the the idea that it's probably pretty unlikely that you're going to lose significant skeletal muscle mass. Would you agree with that? Right. No, I, I think that's definitely fair. I think the most interesting thing out of the study was, um, you know, relative, you know, ma- you know, basically ra- maintain a high level of fat free mass, but his energy expenditure, his resting energy expenditure dropped, you know, pretty drastically, which is, I guess what you would expect, you know, given metabolic adaptation literature. So there, we definitely observe that. Um, I'm pretty confident in saying. Yeah, it was funny. You put on Twitter the other day. You said, why does everybody give Lane a bunch of crap about metabolic adaptation? This is a real thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I put something up the other day where there was a study basically showing that uh, about 70% of the decline in metabolic rate is from metabolic adaptation. And, and because they'll look at, you know, um, the predicted, what they would predict your metabolic rate to be, uh, based on your lean body mass and how much body fat you're losing, how much body mass you have versus what it actually is. And, uh, and, and in the case of Chris, you said he almost lost, I think it was something like almost 50% of his, of his measured metabolic rate, correct? Yeah, I, that sounds about right. It was a, it was a huge drop. Um, so it, it definitely, it definitely occurs. And yeah, you know, I, I think it's, I just find it interesting when people pretend that it doesn't occur, you know, because it's pretty, <laughs> Well documented. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, again, you know, I, I, th- I think part of it stems back to some people have a, uh, for whatever reason, have taken a personal dislike to me, and um, you know, we'll use that to 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 kind of uh, take shots or whatnot. And um, so, yeah. But I mean, the 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 I've just found this this entire thing fascinating because I got into looking at this data, looking at why why can't people. Um, when they diet down, why can't they keep off body fat? Because if it, actually, if you look at the, uh, I'm kind of go off on a tangent, but if you look at the weight loss data, I don't know how much you've looked at it, but it's actually really, really, really extraordinarily grim. Like it basically says, if you don't want to have excess body fat, you better never gain it in the first place. Because once you get it on, you're never getting it off, um, at least statistically. Because I think it's something like an 80 percent, 80 or 90 percent failure rate for for keeping for losing fat and keeping it off. 
And, you know, yeah. some, some people will say, well, that's all just lifestyle. You know, people can't make changes to their lifestyle. And, you know, I think that that is part of it, um, you know, in that people will go on a diet and it, it's a certain diet. And then when it's done, they'll just go back to eating how they did before. And so they'll gain back the body fat. But I also think part of it is, you know, if you if you diet for, for a good period, really restrictively, your metabolic rate is so low, you are primed to regain that body fat um, sure. really quickly. And there's actually a phenomenon out there called body fat overshooting, where a lot of people, um, not only do they regain uh, the body fat they lost uh, during dieting, but they actually put on more than they had originally. And there's some evidence that you can actually reset your set point um, pretty interestingly. So talk about um, Chris and his his kind of recovery, because you said you, you followed him afterwards. Um, did he, in his post-diet, like how long did it take for his metabolic rate to get back to normal? How long was it until he was kind of back to normal? His metabolic rate, his testosterone. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't think his energy expenditure. We didn't. We didn't measure it like as frequently as we did other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it was back to where it was the last time we measured it. So I and don't think that, it was the baseline. And that was that was six months afterwards. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. So I mean, I think what that shows is that you know, even if you do things right, and obviously Dr. Foss knows what he's doing. And, you know, I'm monitoring all that sort of stuff to get that lean. Uh, it takes a toll on your body. And I've always told people the, the based on, you know, this data, obviously, but also the Ansel Key study of, of uh, basically semi-starvation study in man. Um, the data suggests that however long you diet back down, it's probably going to take you about the same period of time to get back to normal or more. Yeah. And so that's, you know, not to not to plug Sohini's book too much, but that, you know, kind of come up with this concept of reverse dieting. And again, it's not, I'm like you with BFR, right? Like if you don't want to do reverse dieting, if you just want to, if you don't care about putting some body fat back on, then by all means do whatever you want, right? But I think most people who diet down would love to maintain a little bit more leanness than, you know, than, than, than the, the, the alternative. Um, yeah. And so the idea... Sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. No, I, I find it, I, I, I posted about this the other day. I, I find that whole kind of like the reverse diet hypothesis, I guess you'd say, I find it interesting because um, like you had said, there's there's not, you know, yeah, there's not controlled studies on that. And I, I think the only way that you're going to be able to study that is through case studies. Right. But I do think it's an interesting strategy um, given that we, I mean, the metabolic rate adapts so it, it seems like a reasonable strategy to, you know, slowly ramp back out of it versus going back to what you were doing. So I, I, I failed to see, you know, I don't know. I, I just feel like there's so much like just dis like, much, like so much hatred for the idea. And I'm just, <laughs> I just thought I'm like, yeah, okay. It's, you're not like you're not saying it's you know founded in like the greatest you know science ever published. <laughs> well. So an idea yeah it's a hypothesis i mean and actually we're trying to get um research set up to, to study those sorts of things because i i mean i want to know you know if it doesn't if it's not any better than just going back you know just you know going right back up um to a higher calorie level then you know i would like to know but i mean i can tell you that um anecdotally as a coach you know looking at individual case studies um that i've seen people who are able to get their 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 amount of calories that maintains their body weight up to back to normal 
and stay leaner than they had previously. And no, I, I agree. And, and one of the things that, um, and everybody's different. Like some people respond to it much better than others. Um, but, but one of the things that's interesting is that, um, you know, there's, like you said, metabolism can adapt both ways. And I think that's, that's one of the key points and everybody responds differently. And some people respond better than others. But I, I always say like, so he and I are, are kind of, I don't want to say sales pitch, but what we always say is like, what's your alternative? Okay. So if you want to maintain that level of leanness based on kind of traditional current thinking, then you have to maintain that deficit forever. Right. And I don't know too many people who are going to want to live in a deficit for the rest of their life. <laughs> and, um, or if you go back to just doing whatever you did before, you're going to rapidly regain body fat. And most people don't want to do that either. Right. So what's wrong with this idea? And the other thing that we kind of got, um, uh, somebody criticized us for, they said, well, just take your calories back up to the, the maintenance level. And I, I believe what they mean is your kind of predicted maintenance. And I said, well, there's an easy way to, to tell that that's um, kind of uh, uh, misguided because if it was truly your maintenance, then you wouldn't gain weight. Right. You know what I mean? Like from a practical standpoint, you wouldn't put on weight if it was actually your maintenance. But I think what we're learning about metabolism um, and I, I love to hear your input because I've never actually talked to you about this. But I think we used to think of metabolism as kind of a static thing that you, you, your metabolism is what it is and you are what you are. And I think what we're learning more and more now is that metabolism is extremely fluid and it's a moving target. And where you are today may not be where you are six months from now or five years from now. Yeah, and I think it's definitely, you know, I think as most things in physiology, things are, you know, very dynamic. Um, not, you know, not necessarily static. And I think, uh, especially with humans, there's such variability from person to person anyway. So I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it makes sense to me that it would be dynamic. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, we appreciate you coming on the show, Jeremy. If people, if, uh, you are a professor now, so, um, if graduate students or potential graduate students are interested in getting in touch with you, um, where, where is the best place to, to contact you at? Yeah, I would just go to our, our website um, and Google Health and Exercise Science and Recreation Management. Uh, it's at the University of Mississippi, uh, a.k.a. Ole Miss. Um, my information is on there, so, uh, as well as some of our other faculty. So if you're interested in you know, studying skeletal muscle, um, especially blood flow restriction or some aging, and I would encourage you to email me. Uh, maybe we can get something set up. Uh, or, you know, we have a, a lot of other people who are doing interesting things there as well. We have a good biomechanics department. So um, if you're just interested in, you know, grad school just in general, I would encourage you to check us out. Very cool. And also they can use Twitter is where you're most active on social media. So where can they, where can they, where can they follow you out on Twitter? Yeah. Um, you can follow me um, at your own risk at <laughs> At J-P-L-O-E-N-N-E-K-E. So at J-P Lenneke. And if you, if you don't like your paradigms getting challenged, don't follow Jeremy. Um, if you don't like what you, you, you believe getting challenged, don't follow Jeremy. Because at some point, he's probably going to challenge something you believe. Yeah, typically people like what I say, you know, the first couple times. And then I, talk, I start talking about things that they do. And it's not quite as much fun anymore. <laughs> What is, the, what is the saying? Everyone says they value evidence until it's something, until it affects their bias and then they no longer value evidence. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's 100% true. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Lindeke, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You've been a great guest. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you on sometime again in the future as, uh, as new research comes out. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks, Jeremy. You've been tremendous. We'll talk to you later, man. All right. See ya. All right, listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Physique Science Radio. This is Lane Martin signing off, Physique Science Radio.